Well, if you're just joining us, we're spending the semester looking at the Psalms. And we're talking about the Psalms as the sound of faith and the noise of life. What does faith do? What does it look like? What does it sound like in all the different kinds of days we have? Anxious days, happy days, days where we're checked out or cynical, uncertain, confusing days. And tonight we're going to talk about Psalm 3 and our panicked moments. Is faith uh, compatible with moments of panic? And if so, what does it sound like? What does faith do when life is falling apart right before your eyes? What does faith sound like when you're painted into a corner with no way out? You're trapped. Things are getting worse before they're getting any better. What does faith sound like in that place, that noisy, chaotic place? This is what faith sounds like in that place. This is Psalm 3. Three things we'll look at or hear when we read it. Faith can freak out in the midst of panic. Faith can cry out in the midst of panic. And faith can rest even in the midst of panic. This is the word of the Lord for you tonight. It's authoritative. It's true. It's sweet. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for God, for him. But you, you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of even many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Our Father, we thank you that your grace, your presence... Your love, your very spirit is present in any and every kind of place we find ourselves in this life. Even in places where the cards are stacked against us, either from our own foolishness or from just circumstances, you are there, you are near, you are for us. And so tonight, would you show us how in the most unlikely of places, Uh, You are there, that our faith would increase, that we would see you and love you and trust you all the more. And would Jesus be the key to our understanding? Would seeing him and knowing him be the way that we are sure, for sure, for sure, that in in the panicked, terrifying places, you are there with us and for us? We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. I've told most of you by now that uh, where, I, where I went to college was the University of Georgia. UGA is a huge football town, huge football school. Every Saturday home game in a fall semester when I was there, uh, me and 93,000 of my friends were inside of Sanford Stadium cheering on the Bulldogs. Um, as my time at UGA went on, my interest in Georgia football decreased. And here's why. The longer I was in college, the longer the list got of stuff you couldn't bring into Sanford Stadium. So my, fir- my freshman year, the kind of stuff that you couldn't bring in was the obvious stuff. 
No big coolers or, or banners because it would block people's views. That makes sense. But then as, as the next year went by and the next year, it was like no outside food and then no drinks and then no water, no bags for the ladies, no purses, no noisemakers or like cowbells or air horns or anything like that because it will distract the players. The list got longer and longer and longer to the point that you had to almost leave everything outside the door. And that was the problem. Because for my friends and I, we got to thinking, why again do I even want to go to this game when I have to leave outside everything that most made me feel a part of the action? Everything that most made me a part of that excitement that gave me a way to enjoy it, I had to leave it at the door. I had to leave behind everything that I felt was me in order to get into the stadium. Here's why I'm telling this. And, and by the way, the, the more we had to leave outside, the more we had to leave behind in order to get in, the less me and my friends even wanted to be there. And so my senior year, I didn't even really go to any, any games because I wasn't interested. I'm like, I don't have fun at the games anymore. This is my point. I'm afraid, and I think that you and I think the Bible is like Sanford Stadium. Or better yet, the Psalms are like Sanford Stadium. There's this long list of stuff you can't bring as soon as you open up your Bible. You can't bring the real doubts you have, the real confusion, the real disappointment about where you are versus where you wish you were. You have to check that at the door. You have to put on your religious or spiritual mask. You have to pretend like you're better than, you're, than you are, that you're doing better than you are, that you understand more than you do. And you can't bring the questions you really want to ask God. You can't bring the frustrations you really have. You've got to check it all at the door. And guess what? You're like me and my friends. Less and less interested and even bothering to open it up. Because you feel like what you're being asked to leave behind is what most feels like you. What most gave you a piece of the action or, or let you participate in it. And that's the saddest part about it. So what's tragic about it is because the Psalms or the Bible are the exact opposite, right? The Psalms demand that you bring who you are, who you really are, to them, if they're going to have any impact on you, if they're going to get through to you or ever change you, you have to be honest, brutally honest, about who you are, where you are, and what you're like. They demand that we stop pretending. They demand that we really be real uh, before God. And so the Psalms aren't at all like Sanford Stadium with a list of stuff you can't bring. They're more like my Bible study uh, in Philadelphia uh, a few years ago before I moved here. Now, this particular night I'm thinking of in this Bible study, it was like any other night. There wasn't anything special about it at the time. We were running late. The conversation had gone longer than it should have, and so we were trying to wrap up prayer requests, and we had 15 people in the room. And so uh, we're trying to go quickly through the prayer requests. But when we got to my buddy... Uh, you could tell that he had something weighty on his mind. And he had a hard time saying it. And so kind of the room got quiet. Everyone looked at him and let him kind of have his time to say 
what he wanted to say. And he said, you know, what I really need prayer from you guys for is, um, I've never really talked about this with anybody, um, but temptation for me right now is just, I don't even know what to do with it. It's so hard. said, for a long time, um, I've, I've dealt with same-sex attraction, and uh, I thought I could fix it, and I haven't been able to, and I don't know what to do. And I really need your prayer, because I want to fight this. I know this isn't who I am. So we listened to, to our buddy, and beautiful response. People prayed for him. We, we encouraged him, and then we, we move around the circle. About three people down was one of my two roommates in the room. Married, has kids, and uh, he said, you know, what he said is true about me too. My wife knows, we've talked to her pastor about it, but I guess I need to be honest with you all too. That's, that's a real piece of me, and I'd be hiding it if I didn't tell you about it. And so that's true about me too. And we go on, and there's some other prayer requests, and we get almost all the way around the circle, and my other roommate the second of my two roommates in the room that night, said, okay, I do too. I struggle with that same thing that my roommate and my friend do as well. And he talked about it, and we prayed for him. And here's the point of this story, because I just said the Psalms are like my friend in that Bible study who put words to his struggle in a way that freed and enabled other people to begin to talk about their struggles. He was the courageous one because he said it first and he said it honestly and candidly, brutally honest, and it freed everybody else in the room to start being real and honest and transparent about what was going on in their lives. And it changed everybody. And and from that night forward, that Bible study was never the same. And our prayer request time wasn't just about tests anymore or pray for me, I have a cold. It was real. We knew each other and we loved each other because his confession named our problems. And that's what the Psalms are like. The Psalms are more honest than you or I would ever dare to be. They're more honest about our doubt. They talk about our doubts in a way that's a lot more vivid and believable than we talk about our doubts. We whitewash it. We pretend like they're not as real as they really are. But the Psalms say it in a more vivid way, and so it frees us to actually say, okay, well, I mean, there it is right on the page, so I guess if David's confessing it, I'm free to confess it. Psalms are more real about our anxiety and our fears. And so they free us to begin to learn to find a new way to talk about our anxieties and our fears. The Psalms don't hide. And so they call us out of our hiding. And that's what Psalm 3 does. It's, a, it's this brutally honest picture of what faith in God sounds like in the midst of absolute panic. Now, here's what I mean. When I say absolute panic, I mean you've just failed the class that you had to have to get into the nursing program. Or you just botched the interview that you had to get to get the internship that you had to get to get the job that you were always destined to have. And it just fell apart. 
or panic like the person that you were supposed to marry or the person you were going to marry just told you they don't want to marry you. And your entire dream and vision of how your life would unfold just blew up. Or your roommates for next year just bailed and you just found out that they do want to live with each other, just not with you. Panic ensues. You're at home at Christmas break and you don't even have to have your parents tell you they're getting a divorce. You could read the writing on the wall. You knew what it was. And so you panicked. So again, when I say panic, I mean that life's falling apart. The sky is falling. Things are getting worse for you, not better. Now, really quickly, for David, here's the situation. Remember what we said last week. The Psalms aren't written in a vacuum, which means they don't just dump out of the sky. There's a context for the Psalms. A lot of you are musicians. You know that you don't write a song out of the blue. It's like you have that huge breakup. Or you meet the person of your dreams or some huge event happens or some new thought pops into your head and you, 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 you run to find a pencil and paper to write it down with, to jot down the lyrics of the, of the tune. The Psalms are the same way. All of these had some kind of real life or historical trigger or catalyst. Some of those um, historical triggers or catalysts are recorded in the Bible. Psalm 3, the trigger that caused this to be David to think these things and pray these things, uh, we actually know what it is because it's recorded for us in, in 1 Samuel. And so the context or the, the stuff that was going on in his life that was causing panic was his son Absalom, kind of the heir to the throne, um, starting a mutiny from right underneath King David's throne. And for four years, King David is getting the kind of news reports every day. It's like Chinese water torture, a little bit here, a little bit there. He's getting reports back of um, Absalom undermining his kingdom. And so just imagine the anxiety that that would produce, the panic that that would produce, as you see your kingdom beginning to slip through your fingers like sand. All that you'd work to build... All the prestige, all the honor, all the power. And on top of that, it's not just that you're a random king. You are God's king. You are the Lord's anointed. God has put you in place and in power. God is your protector. And now everybody around you is seeing, well, where's your God now, David? Maybe God's not on your side because your kingdom and your power and your influence is floating away like a ship at sea. Things got so bad, Absalom had got, gained such a following and pulled away so many of David's advisors and military generals that David had to flee in the middle of the night for his life. He had to leave the throne, leave the palace, leave the city of God to escape, to protect his own life. And if this wasn't bad enough, add on top of it the regret, the shame, and the guilt David had to have felt knowing that in some way what was happening to him was a result of what he did with Bathsheba. So this is David as an older man now. Um, and part of the curse for, what he, for his adultery with Bathsheba and his killing Uriah, part of the curse is, is God telling David, the sword will never depart your household. 
In other words, there's going to be some serious family drama, some violent domestic disputes. And so David knows, as bad as this situation is, part of it is my fault. That's panic. That's humiliation for, a, for the most powerful man in the land. And so what David does in the midst of this is actually otherworldly. You would never expect these words to come out of his mouth when he's on the run for his life. He's humiliated in front of everybody. David shows that faith freaks out. And I'll explain what I mean in just a second. Faith cries out and faith rests. What does it mean that faith freaks out? Well, David, David looks right in the eye of danger and trouble, right in its eye, right in its face, and he calls it what it is. So faith, what I mean by faith freaks out is faith is honest about what it's facing. Faith doesn't whitewash it. Faith doesn't minimize it. It doesn't cliche it and say, oh, well, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, yeah, I'm on the run for my life, but God will take care of it. The Lord has a plan for what he does. Faith itemizes the danger that it's facing. This is happening. That's happening. That's happening. Which is very different than our American stoicism. Which is always minimizing. Always saying there's a silver lining. Don't worry. We say things like let go and let God. Or just hand it over to the Lord. Or stay positive. There's a silver lining here. But David's faith is actually brutally honest, unlike ours. It's not wishful or naively optimistic. Instead, he looks the cause of his panic right in its scary eyes. And he calls it what it is. Verse 1, how many are my foes? Right after that, many are rising against me. In other words, hey, God, things are getting worse, not better. And right after that, many are saying of me, God isn't or will not help him. As if to say, I'm going to die, God, if you don't do something quickly. This is the real David. Nothing's held back. This is full throttle. No pretending. Which means we've got to pull over and take stock real quick before we push on to the second thing. And ask this question. Are you being honest about the panicky, overwhelming places in your life where life's falling apart? Or are you being a numbed stoic who's kind of learned a great song and dance that life's really not as bad as it looks like it is? Or are you able to itemize the dangers that you're looking at or that have you trapped? Calling them out by name, numbering them, speaking them to God, freaking out in that sense, talking about it. The second thing that faith does, it doesn't just freak out, but it cries out. And it doesn't just cry out, but it cries out to the Lord. And this is really different than how we normally respond to. Faith in the midst of panic is not an internal monologue of grumbling. It's not an hour of coffeehouse venting to your roommate about your other roommate. And all the situations that they've stirred up. It's not gossiping. It's not slandering. It's not catharting or kind of putting everything out on the table so you feel better about yourself. But faith is aimed, or the crying out is aimed at the Lord. It's not bottled up, but it's flowing freely. It's aimed at the Lord. It has an address 
on it. Which means faith in the midst of panic sounds like a conversation, not a monologue. Listen, look back at your passage at how David talks about this. David is having a conversation with someone he knows cares for him. He knows the Lord loves him. He knows God's eyes are on him. Verse 1, O Lord. Verse 3, but you, O Lord. Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. In your moments of panic, right now, who are your cries aimed at? Who hears your voice? Is it kind of a, oh God, if you're up there, or do your prayers have a specific address on them? Because you know the Lord cares for you, hears you, loves you, protects you. Is your faith bottled up? Or does your, do your prayers even sound like this blend of pronouns that David has in this prayer? That's a good check on our prayer life, by the way, is, is you can call it a pronoun blender. Look at the pronouns in your prayers. Look at the names that pop up in your prayers. How personal are they? How intimate? This sounds like David put a bunch of pronouns in a blender and hit puree. Let me just look down at the passage with you and call out what I see. David says, my foes are rising against me. My enemies, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifting of my head. I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. I laid down, for he sustained me. I will not fear, for you strike my enemies down. Save me, O Lord. Here's the thing. David can not think about his life without thinking about God's provision and protection. And David can't think about God's provision and protection without thinking about his panic or his predicament. The two have become one. David's life and God's life. David's need and God's riches have blended into one. That's why all these pronouns are thrown in there together. And David knew, knew that he could trust the Lord. And that's why faith in the midst of panic doesn't just freak out and cry out to the Lord, but it can rest. Faith can rest. It can go to sleep in the face of the equivalent of the zombie apocalypse. Faith can rest because David knows the living God through what God has shown himself to be in Scripture, through experiences David has had throughout his life, all the way back to David and Goliath, All the way back to how God pursued him and took care of him, even if the stern hand after Bathsheba. How God has protected him from enemies, given him victory after victory. David remembers that now, and he knows God is for him, that God is faithful and gracious. How do we know this? What's the evidence? Well, David gives us two pictures. The first, he says, the Lord is a shield around me. He is a loyal father looking out for him. In other words, what he means when he says that God is a shield about him, he means around me. So if, there, if a circle is 360 degrees, he means that my God is a shield in every single one of those degrees. 
And so wherever there's a threat, there's my God. Wherever there's a kink in the armor, there's my God. Wherever there's a vulnerability or a terror or a panic, there's my God. He is a shield about me, guarding me. He is with me. The second image he gives us is that the Lord is the gl- his, his glory, or the lifter of his head. Now this, this means two things, I think. The first sense of a lifter of the head is, is this. Eli has been having nightmares lately. And so at 2.30 or 3 in the morning, you know, Anna and I will hear him screaming. And if you've ever babysat a kid or worked in a nursery, when a, when a little kid gets caught and they're crying, it's like a spiral. They can't get out of it. It's like this vicious circle. The more they cry, the more worked up they get. The more worked up they get, the less they can stop crying. It just goes on and on. Until you lift their head. And lifting Eli's head when he's screaming in the middle of the night looks like, Eli, Eli, it's okay. Eli, I'm here. It's okay, buddy. It's okay. Daddy's here. You're safe. That's what it means to lift his head in that moment of terror for him. I I have to nudge him out of that spiral. To get his attention. But the second way that the Bible means this phrase, God is a lifter of our head. If you look at that phrase anywhere else in the Old Testament, whenever it says God lifted our head, it's in a context of humiliation and shame. Where where do your eyes look? Where does your head look when you're humiliated and ashamed? You look down. Down. Think back to your acne in middle school and the people who made fun of you for it. Where did your face look when you walked in in the morning to go to your first class and you were horrified by the way you looked? You looked down. You were downcast. Your head was down. Or in that prom rejection in high school, everybody knew about it. You asked that girl, she said no. Or you were waiting on that guy to ask you and he never did and everybody knew about it. And you're humiliated until that coolest kid in the class or the coolest kid in the school comes up to you and acknowledges you and takes your back and stands up for you. They say, you guys are losers. This kid's awesome. I know him. He's my friend. I like him. And you can imagine if, if that person who had the status and the authority And the honor came and took your side, took your back, advocated for you. You could imagine how that restores your glory and your honor. And guess what happens to your head? Your head is lifted up. And you go from a place of shame and humiliation to a place of honor and confidence. That is what David means, that the Lord is a lifter of his head. The Lord is the one who remembers his promises to David, who cares for him, who stands up for him. That is why David is able to go to sleep and to get a solid eight hours, even though life is falling apart. Now here's where we end. You remember last week, even with Psalm 1, we said, not just with Psalm 1, but with all the Psalms, the Psalms aren't character studies of like, Here's how you can be like David next time you're scared. 
The Psalms aren't inspirational poetry. The Psalms are the sound of faith and the noise of life. And the Psalms are Jesus' songs. These are the songs he sang. This is a picture of his life. And Jesus sang these songs, in Psalm 3 in particular, and he fulfilled it. This isn't just David singing about being surrounded by his enemies. This is the greater David one day on the cross being surrounded by his enemies. And saying and thinking, many, Lord, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. It's getting worse, God. Not any better. This is a picture of the Lord's anointed being seemingly cast off his throne and mocked. You're the king of the Jews, as Rigo read earlier. If you're God, why don't you save yourself? And they put a crown on him. And they clothed him in purple linens to pretend like he was king, even though he really was. That is what Psalm 3 is a picture of. Jesus, in his humiliation, standing up for, advocating for, lifting the head of his people, by taking our sin, our guilt, our shame, our condemnation upon himself, That we might be honored. That we might be lifted up. That the Lord might be our shield. And so Jesus continues to be not just in that moment of atoning for us. But he continues to be forever our advocate. Which means in the circle of accusers that faces you every day and faces me every day. Everything from your friends to your own heart that John talks about in 1 John. When our hearts condemn us. All the way to the devil himself, the accuser. When you are surrounded by accusers, surrounded by mockers, it is no less than the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ that speaks up on your behalf, defending you and lifting your head. That is what this is a picture of. And so if you are losing sleep at night because of the panic that you face right now, What will it mean for you and me to be freed, to start looking at our dangers and naming them, itemizing them, talking to God about them, freaking out? What will it look like to aim those prayers at the living God whom we know is for us through Jesus? And what will it look like to begin to fall asleep and rest even in the midst of of panic because we are so certain of God's provision and protection for us. The proof of which is the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the greater David. We thank you that when you cried for the Lord to save you, he did not answer you from his holy hill, but you heard silence so that whenever we cry, lo, Lord, save us. We would hear heaven's answer. Jesus, we pray that you would grow our faith. That we would more and more like you trust the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our moments when all seems to be falling apart. We ask this in your name and for your sake. Amen.